Welcome to the Vertical Go-To-Market Podcast, where you'll discover new opportunities to grow your business from seven figures to eight from the world's most successful agency and B2B SaaS executives. I'm your host, Corey Quinn. Today, I'm joined by John Rougeau. Welcome, John. Hey, Corey. Thanks for having me, man. John, could you please introduce yourself for those listeners who may not be familiar with you and your background? Sure. Well, I am John Rougey, and I'm an advisor at Category Design Advisors, where we help CEOs and founders uh, identify and dominate categories and niches where they can be number one. I've spent most of my career as a marketer in the B2B uh, SaaS space, co-founded a company uh, along the way, and I spent the first few years of my career in a, in a boring uh, kind of supply chain role, which we probably won't get into today, but that's where I started, and here I am. Category design may be a new concept for the audience for this show. Could you give us a high-level overview of what category design is? Category design is a framework for helping companies identify and dominate new categories, or you might use the word niches. But it's really mm -hmm. a, it's a business strategy, and it's, it's something that companies use when they are solving a new problem. You know, new problems crop up all the time in our world is technology and society changes, or they're solving an old problem in a radically new way. And we can get into mm. specifics of that. But uh, that's the that the, the gist of it. Most of what we've, you know, if you went to business school or if you studied marketing or if you've read most of the business literature, typically what people talk about is this idea of capturing market share. And the, the category is kind of a given. So you're in XYZ category, and your job is to grow market share from 10 to 15% or 70 to 72%, wherever you are, that's mm -hmm. the mentality. And along with that, there's the, the approach there is we have a better product than the, the leader. We're, we're better, faster, cheaper. We have more, more features. It's, it's some sort of comparison metric where we're saying we're a, this is a better product. And that can work in some contexts, but category design is a much different framework. Instead of saying that you've got a better product, what we talk about is forcing a choice and building something that's, well, categorically or, or fundamentally different from what exists in uh, in the world today. And through that process, carving out that new niche or that new category that that company can and own, own and dominate. So on this show, we talk a lot about focusing down on a specific niche or, or a, a vertical, like you're saying. How does that relate, how does category design relate to, or how is it similar to or different from niching down? Yeah, I think we'll have a good discussion about this because you, you have a, a very specific approach on niching down within a vertical and I am mm. have a, I think a related approach that might complement uh, niching down. So let me back up a little bit further though and give you some broader context. We were talking about solving new problems or solving old problems with new ways. That's kind of the fundamental thesis behind category design. Mm -hmm. So if, let's break that down a little bit further. We're, when we talk about problems, we're solving customer problems, of course. Now, problems don't exist in a vacuum. They don't exist in a generic sense. They have to be experienced by someone or some group of people for them to be worth solving. Otherwise, they're just <laughs> imaginary. Now, companies that tend to excel, and you know, you, there's plenty of other books that support this, they tend to be really good at solving a specific problem. And they do that one problem better than anyone else. You know, Jim Collins mm -hmm. talks about this in Good to Great. It's like the uh, hedgehog principle 
I, yeah. I'm probably getting it wrong. I'm probably gonna get the animals wrong. No, that's There's it. a principle that's where it. it's the hedgehog. <clears throat> okay, yeah, hedgehog does one thing really, really well. And there's countless examples of companies who do that thing really well before they move on to some other thing. When you've identified a specific problem that you want to solve better than anyone else, chances are there's a group of people who have something in common who experienced that problem. So this is where the overlap is between what you just described with a niche approach and mm-hmm. a category approach. That group of people, it could be an industry vertical. Uh, maybe it's airports. Maybe it's uh, chiropractors. Uh, could be anything. But um, it doesn't always have to be. Sometimes a problem can be experienced in a more horizontal sense, uh, maybe with a demographic group or a stage of a company, something along those lines. But many times that vertical has unique problems that only it experiences or it experiences them in a different way or needs for them to be solved in a different way than similar companies who have similar problems. So that's where kind of niching down into a vertical and category design overlap in my view, because you're at, if you're pursuing that vertical, you're, you're looking at a group of people and you're understanding, you're trying to understand what problem do I need to solve for them? And how do I build a business and a product and a marketing strategy and all the things that extend from that, that that's going to solve that problem better than anything else? I love that problem focus because it, it puts the energy and the effort and the investment of resources into the customer and the specific thing that they're looking to solve. From my experience, that's that's the right place for a business to be, you know, spending their their time. And I would agree. In my experience, a vertical will have problems that are unique to that vertical, in that through the process of specialization, you become an expert in understanding that problem and then more importantly being able to solve it in a unique way that a generalist wouldn't be able to really do as effectively because they don't have that that level of focus into that that problem set. That's right. And yeah. there's companies who are broad today but they started off in a in a niched approach. And category designers love to talk about Salesforce because it's one of the like probably largest profile example out there, but Salesforce started selling to SMBs, people who couldn't spend tens of thousands of dollars upfront on an on-premise CRM product, but they could spend $29 a month on a CRM. So backing up a little bit, how did you get introduced to the concept of category design? So let me give you the backstory. I told you earlier that I uh, was the co-founder of a company and I, I want to share that story because it provide some good context for why I decided to research the things that led to category design. Mm. So this was back in, I think, 2015 or so when I was co-founding this company. We had built a uh, a product that helped local business owners uh, generate uh, word of mouth referrals on social media. And we had a cause marketing right. component that went into it. Uh, the company is called Causely. It was a great example of solving an old problem in a new way. Local businesses... They've always needed wor- more word of mouth referrals. That's their their bread and butter, but it's very difficult to scale it. So that we had built the solution again. It, I won't get into the details, but it brought cause marketing and social media together to generate this very authentic, organic way of of scaling referrals. So for the first few years of our of our growth, we relied really heavily on performance marketing, specifically paid social, and the math was really just lovely, Corey. Like mm. we knew exactly what it would cost us to get a demo. We knew what our customers were worth and the mar- the gap between the uh, LTV and the cost of acquisition was really healthy. Mm. And so we just 
we just ran that, you know, cranked that machine as, as often as we could. At a certain point in time, though, our growth started to plateau. And there's more than one reason. Some of it had to do with Facebook's advertising economics changing. Some of it has to do with when you spend more, the you get diminishing returns. But the, the point is our, our growth started to slow and we started to feel like we were reaching kind of a, a cap on, on how big we could grow the company with the mechanisms and the resources we had in place. So fast forward, we ended up getting acquired and, and I kind of moved on. But I started to think about what what we were, what other things we were doing along that journey that fueled our growth. And one day it dawned on me that yes, we were doing really well in performance marketing, but we were doing something else in parallel with that that was really important that we ended up slowing down later. And I didn't realize the importance of this at the time. What we were doing in parallel is we were uh, speaking on podcasts. We were going to events where we were speaking on stage. We were talking with customers. We were talking at customers' events. And in every one of those situations, we were sharing this new approach to the problem and why not uh, being able to scale word of mouth was was such a problem for local businesses. We were evangelizing the problem. We were selling the problem. And when we did that, the light bulb went off in customers' mind that, hey, this company probably has a solution that can help me solve that. Now I will ca- I would call that that activity a, a point of view or a category POV. I didn't have the language for it at the time, but what I realized was in all of those situations where we were evangelizing our point of view about the problem, we were creating demand for this new approach. Our performance marketing in a large part was just capturing that demand that we had created. And again, I didn't have a framework for this at the time. I didn't have a lens. I didn't know what this was called. I later did some research, came across a book called Play Bigger, and I found out that that process is called category design. And it's again, it's when you identify a problem and you evangelize that problem with a specific market or audience or niche. And then you, by extension, you create demand for the solution that, that you've built. So long story longer, as uh, Christopher Lockett likes to say, it, it was only in retrospect that I started to research the t- topics that led me to category design. I actually started reading a bunch of old school marketing books because I was so curious, like how did companies scale before digital marketing, before like CPC and, and all these very tangible metrics? So I came across uh, some books by Al Reese and Jack Trout. Um, they talk about this idea of being number one in a category. Um, they talk about this concept of if you can't be first in the category, set up a new category that you can be first in or a new niche. And from there, a friend of mine, uh, I was having a conversation with him. He recommended Play Bigger, which is now it's about six or seven years old, but it's still kind of the blueprint for category design thinking. And as soon as I read that book, all these light bulbs went off. I thought, oh my gosh, there are all these things I would have done differently had I had this framework in mind, you know, all those years ago. And so now this is a focus of your career. It's, it's, uh, it's that Nolly had that an early impact, but now it's something that you're bringing to other businesses. Yes. Yes. Like the next company I joined, it was an Australian company. I was able to apply some principles there as we Mm. tried to move away from a commodity space into more of our own niche. I got recruited to join another company called BombBomb and then a blockchain company because of my category design background. And I started along the way, I started doing some consulting on the side, did a lot of writing, some podcasting, just creating content around the ideas. I learned more. And, you know, one day I just realized, hey, I'm, I'm able to add a lot more value focusing on this line of work than I am as a marketer. So I decided to shift in, into this focus instead. And 
that's what I've been doing since. What is what to you is so powerful or beneficial about category design? I think first of all, it's a lot more fun. But let me unpack that because I think that that's why it gets to why it's powerful. And not not everyone is going to agree with this statement, uh, and that's okay. But when you think about that kind of traditional approach to to marketing of let's capture market share, let's convince buyers we've got a, a better product. Really, what that comes down to is you're trying to outcompete competitors on better sales and marketing tactics. And maybe you have a better product that can help, right? It, it does help, but it really comes down to like hand to hand combat on sales and marketing tactics. And I, I know some marketers who just love that. They, they love that idea of like, let's outrank so and so on SEO, let's try to get more reviews, let's dial in our conversion rate optimization. You know, by another tenth of a percent, so we can get a few more leads over our competitors. That that's like, that's where they thrive. And if that's the game that someone wants to play, more power to them. I don't really like that game, and I think there's a lot of other people who don't. Not just marketers, but CEOs. It's for me, it's a lot more exciting when you can say we've thought deeply about a problem that that really needs to be solved in the world, and work with a team who has conviction about why that problem matters and why it's worth solving because when you get so clear on that and you get you get people who are who join you and they're really like missionaries they they truly want that problem to be solved and i feel like you're doing more meaningful work you're contributing more just to to society to the business world when when you are going out of your way and you're trying to to solve hard problems and you're making a conscious effort to do that. A, a, a guy I really respect, Eddie Yoon, he kind of lays out this contrast between missionaries and mercenaries. And mercenaries are folks who try to, you know, they want to make some money like everyone else, but they're not really bought into the problem. They're not really bought into the cause. When you see a, a really good CEO and, and team using the category design lens, they're missionaries. They care about the problem. And for me, it's just exciting to work on that. And I think people do commit more and they are able to achieve more when they have that kind of uh, challenge laid out in front of them. Yeah. For me, uh, as, you're, as you were saying that, I kept thinking about this concept of uh, blue ocean versus red ocean, right? In the sort of the, the world of better competing in, in the red ocean of trying to capture a diminishing share of a market based on someone else's game. Like, yeah. That's right. Some people hear about category design. Maybe the listeners based on this conversation are saying, you know, isn't this just a, a marketing strategy? Isn't like niching down or focusing on the problem? Isn't this just a like a marketing plan or 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 is it not? That's one of the biggest misconceptions. I'm probably guilty of over-indexing on the category design as a marketing strategy myself because my background is as, as a marketer. But over time, I learned the shortcomings of trying to approach it as a, as a pure marketing play or even just over-indexing on marketing. It's really category design is a business strategy at its core. And like when we work with clients, we only work when the CEO or the equivalent role is involved. And the reason I say that is, well, let's go back to what we talked about before about this idea of identifying the problem. Okay. So let's say, Corey, you're the CEO of some company and you understand that problem better than anyone else. And your vision is to, to solve that. Okay. So what are the ramifications of that lens? Well, marketing is a piece of it. Right, you obviously need to communicate that problem to your customers and explain the solution. But that's just one slice of the of the pie. Your definition of the problem is going to inform your product roadmap. Uh, it's going to inform the kind of people that you hire, 
uh, it's going to inform the way that you communicate with investors and your board. It's going to inform the way that you structure your company, your organizational capabilities that you decide to invest in or not invest in. It's a lens for all of these strategic decisions throughout the company. Uh, marketing ends up being the tip of the spear because they're the ones who are maybe writing the press releases or doing a marketing campaign that kind of unleashes all of this thinking to the world. But it, um, at its core, it's 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 a business strategy, right? So we've got to we've got to go a little deeper than just the the head of marketing. I've heard you say this term recently. Category design is like radical differentiation. Could you talk about this concept of radical differentiation? What does that mean? How is that different or the same as category design? Yeah. Okay. So I started using this term more often because it was it came from one of the other misconceptions that I was hearing about category design a lot. The misconception was that, and this is this is really bad in the B two B space. I don't think B two C consumers have this problem, but B two B marketers we get so hung up on like Gartner, Forrester, your your G two, and these quote unquote official categories with that are you know, proper nouns. And B2B marketers tend to conflate category design with having one of these official categories named by an analyst at a Gartner or a Forrester. And sometimes both of those things happen, but that's kind of missing the point. I use that misconception to frame your question because category design can happen all the way from a, a public company trying to create that mega category, but it can all, happen all the way down to a solopreneur who's trying to carve out a, a niche within a space. You can even apply it to your career. So when we, th when I, I started to talk more about this idea of radical differentiation because wherever you are in that spectrum of business and or, or aspiration for what you want to achieve, if, if you're thinking about how you can be radically different, then you're thinking like a category designer. I, I come across a lot of people who think like category designers, but they've never heard of category design. They just understand it intuitively. And so you you can, uh, there's a great uh, resource that Category Pirates put out. It's called the Eight Category Levers. And they talk about like radically different profit model, radically different distribution, radically different marketing, um, radically different uh, you know, distribution strategies. Uh, maybe I mentioned that one already. But there's, uh, I don't have... Uh, all eight of them uh, on hand, but there's multiple ways you can s force a choice between a, an existing company and yours by doing something radically different from what what came mm -hmm. before. Marketing is just one example, but there's plenty of other options as well. I would say for myself, just being a, a student of category design for several years now, and that's largely how we connected. I think my experience of category design is that it can feel for an existing company to be too radical, <laughs> to use the term, mm -hmm. of a shift in that from a formal perspective, at least how I have interpreted it, at least in the early days, was that when you design a new category, you're you're basically you know burning the ships on the old version and now you have to kind of transform the, the business and it's a big it's a big shift, it's a big commitment and it's hard, can be hard to mobilize a larger company to be able to really adopt this. And so when I heard this term radical differentiation, what I felt just to share with you is that it is much more approachable because I think differentiation is something that's easily understandable. And when you modify it with the word radical, which is category mm -hmm. design, you're able to, at least I felt like, ah, oh, okay, this is a way for, I, I can, I can see how we can approach this 
in less of a um, sort of a binary perspective, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it, less binary. W- when you talk to your clients about niching down, does that feel like too big of a leap or too extreme of a maneuver? And if so, do you do you have to kind of, uh, I don't know, repackage it or reframe it so they understand why it's actually, I assume you're going to tell them it's a, it's actually improves their odds of success, not it's not risky at <laughs> how do you yes, handle that? Yes, and, and, and you know what's interesting is a lot of the people I speak with know the benefits of niching down or, or choosing to focus or specialize uh, mm-hmm. in a vertical, even if it's for the near term. You know, it's not that they're going to, you only do this one thing for the rest of the business, but I think the the, the primary, uh, there's a couple of objections to it, um, which is that, well, I'm just going to get uh, bored <laughs> with this vertical by doing yeah. the same thing every day, all day. And of course, that that's not, that's not necessarily true, that that's, that that's the reality. But I think in, in from a real practical perspective, businesses who have been successful by saying yes, by not focusing, by not verticalizing, or by not over committing to one customer type or the other, but instead have grown through being a generalist or being horizontal or just saying yes to a whole bunch of different Mm -hmm. sizes and shapes of companies has led them to the point of being sort of quote unquote successful, have created seven figure businesses. And so to go from the the founder of someone who says yes a lot and has seen a lot of the benefits out of that going to transforming into beginning to start to say no and focus the 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 business mm-hmm. in a specific direction that's a hard transition and so i think you either they're either ready to do it and they just need a, a guide to help yeah but majority of the time is that they know they should but they're not ready yet because it's just too much it's too much of a shift from where they're at when you say they're not ready do you mean like mentally they're not ready or like Capability-wise, they're not ready, or maybe it's something else. It's where their headspace is at, right? So mm. logically, they know it's the right thing, or that it could be a good thing for their business. Mm-hmm. They've seen other examples of companies like them who were generalists and moved into more of a specialty or a vertical focus and been wildly successful. However, they still resist it because they still think that they could do it. They continue to grow and get bigger doing the same thing that they've always done. Yeah. It's uh it's so interesting you said that. It just it really shows how like how much people still make a, decisions emotionally. Like you said they know mm-hmm. that it's logically the right thing to do, but their their emotions, their uh the investment of things that have happened in the past, yeah. it's kind of all the evidence, sunk cost all the evidence. Fallacy. But but what happens is the um and by the way i can't change their mind for them i can't convince them otherwise like they have to be ready to do that change <laughs> right <laughs> i'm not going to try but but the the symptoms that show up in a business that that indicate that hey it's it's time to really seriously think about specializing in business there's three things number one if the new sales has slowed down a lot of businesses i talk to have relied on inbounds Right. And for whatever reason, that slowed this year or in general, or it's just harder to get inbounds. And the challenge, of course, is that you don't control inbounds as a business. It's it's not mm-hmm. a marketing strategy. It's it's you know, you don't have any direct influence over that. And so inbounds have slowed and it's harder to close deals, it's harder to acquire new business. So that's number one. Number two, they're losing customers. So any new business they bring mm-hmm. in is offset by losing customers. So they're kind of flatlined. 
that's the second signal that they're that they need to consider verticalizing. And the third one is that they've stopped innovating, that they've that they don't have the bandwidth internally to be able to build their product to improve their offering because they're too busy running around playing whack-a-mole, you know, trying to serve customers mm-hmm. of all shapes and sizes. It's just too busy of a business. Meanwhile, chat GPT and AI have, have arrived and they have no time to figure that out for their business and for their customers, right? There's just no bandwidth. So if you, if you yeah. get to that point as a business owner and you, you're suffering from all three, it may be time <laughs> to really think about focusing your business and verticalizing. Yeah, it's really interesting you mentioned that because those are, are they sound like they sound like cousins to some of the uh, symptoms we see present themselves when a company needs to be more intentional about their category strategy. I'd um, love to hear it. Like, yeah, same. Yeah, on. one of them is when a company it, it finds itself in a commodity space and it doesn't have a way to separate itself from that environment. If they're competing on price or sales and marketing tactics, like I mentioned before. And what they need to do is think about how can they, well, how can they be radically different? How can they innovate? What what does that look like? It could be a new product development. It could be R&D. It could be something else. But the category design process gives them a lens for thinking through where they should point the ship. Mm-hmm. So that's Great. one. Um, the second one is usually the one that we encounter more often. Um, and it's when a company has already, they've built something that is innovative and it's a it's some sort of radically different approach or solution, but buyer perception is the issue. They don't know how to talk about why they're different or why that difference matters. Mm. And as buyers, we all use categories as kind of a mental shortcut for navigating the world and the thousands of products of, of how we put things into categories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, like, let's pick a really easy one. Like what's your, what's your favorite soda? Well, I just drank or a what, Diet what's Coke. Your, so. What's your favorite beer? Let's go with that. <laughs> uh, my favorite right now, well, I'll tell you my favorite from college because I haven't drank one in a while, but I want one is a, a Sierra Nevada pale ale. Okay. So right there, you said pale ale right now. Let's say that's a category of beer or a subcategory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, let's say you came out with a new beer and it was kind of hoppy, but it had some other flavor profile into it. And it, that flavor profile was different from other types of beers that existed. Mm-hmm. Now, if I don't tell you, maybe it's closest to an IPA or to a pale ale. So I, So you... You tell me it's a pale ale and I drink it and I'm like, gosh, Corey, I don't know. This really isn't a very good pale ale. <laughs> it's kind of sucks. <laughs> but but what if you said, well, it's uh I'm not gonna it's make a up a new name for it's beer a, on the spot. It's, like it's a, a stout, stout or a yeah. Saison yeah. or yeah. <laughs> you know, uh um Belgian ale. It, even if I don't know what that means, um when I encounter that new term, then my brain is uh, using a different algorithm. I'm not saying, is this a good or a bad pale ale? I'm saying, well, let me figure out what this thing even is. I have, mm-hmm. I'm forced to evaluate it on its own merits, not in comparison or in reference to something else that already exists. So that's where a lot of startups uh, have problems is they've built something and it's 
kind of similar to some other things, or it has some attributes or some features, or maybe a little bit of an overlap with capabilities of some other products that exist. But they're really, it's not really that thing. It just has some shared DNA. And what buyers do when they encounter it is they're like, oh, well, it's just like this other thing. And they'll usually reference some sort of uh, like category leader in this space. Oh, it's kind of like this, but a little different. And when that happens, you're dead. You're dead because let's say it's a CRM for just easy illustration. Immediately, you're comparing it to Salesforce. Is it better than Salesforce? Probably not. Does it have the same um, capabilities, same features? Exactly. Does it have the same plugins and and yeah, right. all that? Right. And 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 you, and if that's the real life situation, it's probably not actually a CRM. It just maybe has some things that are similar. So what I need to do is I need to tell customers what this is. I need to tell them what problem it solves and why this hmm. problem isn't solved by other things that exist. When I do that, then they're evaluating my thing on its own merits. And they're not worried about whether it's better or worse in a sales force, it's, it's, I'm forcing a choice. I'm, I'm showing something that's fundamentally different. Um, so that's the, that's that second scenario is when a, a company's built something novel, they don't have a narrative or we call it a POV point of view to make that easy for buyers to understand why it's different, why that difference matters. And they get hung up. They don't get traction or they get customers buying for the wrong reasons because they're confused or they have to go through this lengthy, drawn out sales process to actually explain what it is and, and it's a mess. How do you address the concern, whether it's founded or not, that teaching an audience about a new category is expensive, it takes a lot of time. I'm a startup and I've got a 12-month runway to be able to get to certain financial milestones. How do I, you know, how do I approach this? Well, the first thing I say is business in general is expensive mm-hmm. and business in general is a long-term game. And when you look at how much companies waste on marketing and sales tactics that are are using that old playbook of trying to capture market share that don't work, that's expensive. And it's expensive when two years from now, you're another Me Too product and nobody cares. And you're not in a position to be acquired because you haven't done anything different. You're not, you haven't identified a niche or a vertical to go after. So you don't have a defensible moat. And you're just fighting for scraps. To me, that's the most expensive strategy there is. It just doesn't show up right away. It's like cancer. Yeah. So it's in other words, it's a it's a strategic investment in your business's long term mm. success. Sure. Now, if mm. if you're a startup and you've got twelve months, you know, six months of runway, and you've got a you have to be profitable within that time, maybe there's fundamental things you are are missing with the business. Maybe in that situation. You, maybe you shouldn't be trying to do something like that large. Maybe your aspirations are larger than your resources and your time frame. So those things do have to be kept in check. Sometimes we do work with clients and they, even like later stage uh, startups, they'll tell us about the category they want to build and it's way far out on the horizon. It's um, <laughs> It's beyond what technology can deliver or it's beyond what buyers are willing to shift to. It's too much of a departure from what exists today. And we tell them, you've got to rein this thing back or you, and you've got to build kind of a path to that long-term vision. Otherwise, you can't um, you can't wait the market out for three, five, seven years until the technology and society is ready. 
<laughs> you need to do something that's more pragmatic today to kind of work yeah. there incrementally. So it kind of cuts both ways. Would you take us through just a high-level overview of how to do category design? We always start with the problem, which shouldn't come as a surprise if you're listening because I've probably you know beaten that horse uh, beyond uh, death already. But we start we start with the problem, and we ident- we really focus on who we're solving the problem for, what the consequences of that problem are, and what the what and what the ramifications of an unsolved problem are for a particular group of people. Almost all of the work at the, on the front end is on the problem, understanding that problem better than anyone else and really dialing in why it's a problem and what, again, what happens if that problem's not solved. What's really interesting is once you've clarified the problem, the solution starts to become self-evident. Like you can you can see it, what was very uh, blurry starts to get some definition to it. And you can start to see what solution needs to exist to solve this problem. If you've got a really broad problem, you're going to have a broad solution and you're not going to get very far. So mm-hmm. the first um, exercise we take clients through is developing that problem and solution narrative, which we call a point of view or a POV. So that's our first step in the process is building that POV. And that that point of view, it's a strategic uh, document for the business that it's used externally to show customers, investors, partners where the company is headed, but it's just as equally used internally to set the direction for the product roadmap, for hiring, for investments, and other things of that nature. So that's step one. Step two, uh, we think about internal mobilization. So if I'm the CEO and I've gone through this exercise, I've just made, I've just put a big flag uh, in the sand about where my company is going to go. And I, if I don't have my team on board, if they're not clear on what this is and how we're going to get there, then I'm not going to get very far. Mm-hmm. So we do um, some exercises with the team to help them align on what this category means, what it means for their specific department, whether I'm in product or accounting or marketing, we've got to get that aligned. Then we work on what's called a mobilization strategy. So how do we take this message, this point of view out to market and start educating our buyers on the problem and then getting them to a place where they can understand the solution. Sometimes that's one big, huge event we call lightning strike. Other times it's a series of smaller events we call rolling thunder, but we put an intentional plan in place to act to, uh, again, bring that message to market and start transforming uh, the minds of buyers about what this company is all about. What are some resources that you could point our audience to to help them learn more about category design? There's a few places that I would start. I'll start with a self-promotional one because that's uh, that's easiest. But we do office hours for anyone who's interested or curious about category design, whether they're an expert, whether they've just heard about it and want to learn more. You can schedule often an office hours slot with our team. You just go to category designers, sorry, categorydesignadvisors.com and you'll see a link for office hours and you can just schedule a time with us at your leisure. That's the easiest place to start if you just want to talk to somebody and and have a conversation with uh, you know, no strings attached. Uh, some other resources. Um, there's a group of three guys called Category Pirates, Christopher Lockett, Eddie Yu, Nicholas Cole. They have a newsletter and some um, kind of uh, mini books that they've published that are really thoughtful, really uh, in-depth content. 
So I would I would check Category Pirates out. Uh, reading Play Bigger is is kind of a necessity. I almost skipped that over, but the category, Play Bigger is really the blueprint on on category design. Came out in 2016. Um, great place to start. Yeah, I'll second that. I've read that book maybe three times, and I've taught the content at the last company I worked at to the executive team. It is a very, very powerful book. Sure, yeah. And you know, it's w- one of the co-authors, Kevin Maney, is a partner of mine at, at CDA. And w- you are thinking has evolved since the book. The, the book is amazing. But like any discipline, it evolves. You gain new insights. You make new connections. So that's one of the things we like to share in office hours is kind of what's evolved since the book, since a lot of the people we've spoken to in those sessions have, have read the book already. Uh, the last thing I'll mention, Corey, is um, I think you know about this already. We're putting together a community for people who are interested in furthering their category design journey, connecting with others who are interested in practicing the discipline. The community is going to be called Category Thinkers. Now, we haven't launched it yet because we're recording this in uh, early April. But the best way to find out about that is actually just follow me on LinkedIn because I post about this all the time. So look for I don't know how, if you're going to remember how to spell my last name, but um, look for me on LinkedIn, <laughs> follow me, and then um, you know I'll keep you posted on on the on the launch of that and how to get involved with that community. I'll make sure to put your links to your LinkedIn profile, links to your website, uh, and some of these other resources in the show notes so people can get quick access to those. How do you want people to get in touch with you, John? Uh, easiest way is uh, email, just John at CategoryDesignAdvisors.com or LinkedIn, but link, LinkedIn uh, messages. I don't know for you, man. It's just a, it's a quagmire today. So <laughs> odds, of a, <laughs> odds of a reply are pretty low. It's pretty rough these days. Yeah. Anything else you'd like to cover on the topic of category design or the work that you're doing? Well, I'm curious to ask you, like when you talk to your clients about this idea of niching down and owning a space, what are like, what are some of the questions that you get asked and like, what are some of the the points you try to convey to really move people yeah. along that journey? So part of the process that I help my clients with is not only choosing the right vertical, which is typically based on some data that they have to support that that's the right vertical. There's There's a whole process there. But once they've identified, hey, this is our best fit vertical for our business, then it's going and doing sort of a mini version of your of the POV where it is taking a look at understanding the the problem that the buyer has that this company is uniquely suited to solve. And the way we get there is we actually do customer interviews, do mm-hmm. five to seven, maybe 10 customer interviews. And these are to uncover how and why they buy. What was the situation before they bought this product, you know, of the of the of my clients? What were the conditions that cause them to look, you know, really trying to uncover the whole buying journey to understand that problem and really be able to not only understand it, but also communicate it, articulate it in a, in a powerful way. And then the next step then is we do a competitive differentiation screen. Really, we're trying to understand as from the buyer's perspective, who else are they choosing from? Like who else who else are they trying to buy from? It could be generalists, like businesses that serve, you know, all types of businesses. It also could be more specialists. So an example might be, let's say, client of mine is uh, they have a mobile app for uh, restaurants, as an example. And the restaurant, the the mobile app does 
onboarding. So helping new employees like bartenders and, and servers and bussers to be able to um, to get onboarded to the restaurant, be able to understand the, the, the processes and the menu and all these things. It's a great mobile app. And the person who buys that is either going to be the owner, depending on the size of the restaurant, the owner or someone in human resources or training or people ops. And so there's going to be other competing platforms out there who are trying to uh, sell them their version of the, their solution to this problem. And so understanding what companies are out there, how they're positioned uh, in the marketplace uh, is really sort of helps to inform how to position my client. And so what we do is we take the takeaways about the problems that we solve and the competitive landscape to try to understand like, where's the white space? Where, where's everyone competing? And what's truly unique about our business and our, about our, our product and the problem we're solving that can help to differentiate in a, maybe in mm-hmm. a radical way, the, the business so that the buyer, when they see the messaging, whether it's problem folk, whether it's evangelizing the problem, like you mentioned, or, or, uh, our other types of content that they recognize that, Hey, this, this vendor, this company, this app maker truly understands us at a very deep level which of course creates a competitive advantage for that business because they're able to create that level of trust and rapport early as part of their go-to-market. And so um, that's kind of insight into the process. But I think to answer your question, a lot of my clients are unfamiliar or they don't think about marketing based on the customer's problem. That's a new concept to mm-hmm. them. And it's kind of like once you once you see that, once you do it, it's it's like it's the most obvious way to go to market is figuring out, okay, well, what problem are we going to be the expert at solving and be committed to becoming the expert? We may not be the expert today. They're much more focused on products and features and and, and, and sort of surface benefits. And so that's really the biggest uh, learning that I have to help my clients to really see the world in a different way really from the, the buyer, their buyer's worldview. It's all about like giving them clarity and then giving them the courage to act on that clarity, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Well, hey man, thanks for having me on. It's uh, Absolutely, always, always fun to chat with you, man. Always. I mean, I, I think that uh, you and I share a deep passion for this idea and this this framework because I think it's, it is so powerful. So I really appreciated you coming on and sharing with the audience all your wisdom. So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, you bet. And we'll have to have you on the Category Thinkers podcast to kind of share Anytime. your view on things and take it, uh, take it from there. That's awesome. All right, folks, that's it for today. I'm Corey Quinn, and I hope you join me again next time for the Vertical Go-To-Market podcast. If you received value from the show, I would love a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you soon. 